Yes, it's a delight to stand here. This is the first time I've stood here as the preacher in 29 years. And yes, I will admit it, in the meantime, I've become an old man. That thought takes me back to when I was in high school. I knew when I was in the eighth grade that I was going to be a minister. So long about either 10th or 11th grade, I went to the June session of the Mississippi Annual Conference. And the guest preacher that summer was a gentleman by the name of Clovis Chapel. He was 80 years old. And when he was introduced, he stood and said, Now, I know exactly what a lot of you out there are thinking. You're asking yourself, why in the world would the bishop invite an old man like me to be the preacher? Well, he said, I can tell you, I've been doing a little bit of thinking too. And as I look across this audience, I want you to know that I would not be as young and ignorant as some of you are for the whole world. (laughs) Well, I'm not young anymore. But as I've gotten older, I've done a little bit of some ritualizing. And one of the things that I've done in recent years, particularly since I lost Mary, was when I get in the bed, turn out the light, I recite some verses from Psalm 37. Those words say, Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and God will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I like the way uh, a pastor in, in North Carolina, Carlisle Marnie, translates that verse. He put it like this. Delight yourself, delight yourself in the Lord, and God will fix your water. You know, we all have waters. We want many, many things that water needs to be fixed. The psalmist continues, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord and God will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And then says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. As I've lived with those words, uh, two or three things have come to the fore for me. One is, that I indeed have been blessed to dwell in the land and in so many ways 
have enjoyed safety. My mom and dad were so supportive of me when I said I wanted to be a minister. And with no money, almost, they said, we'll stay with you all the way through. And you know, they did. I do not know to this day just how they did it. I've been privileged to live to this point 87 years and have enjoyed relative good health. I have five sisters, and you know, amazingly, we are all still here. I was married to Mary for 62 years, and we had three wonderful kids, three amazing in-laws, and eight incredible grandkids. <laughs> so, yes, I have to say that I have, I have dwelled in the land and have enjoyed a lot of safe pasture. But as one continues to think, you, real, you realize <clears throat> that for all of us, life is also filled with loss. It's a part of every one of us. It's the way we're made. It's the way God put us together. And the more you and I can can recognize that and accept it and live with it, the better off we are. A lady by the name of Margaret Wrinkle helps me say it. Margaret lives in Nashville, Tennessee. She's an excellent writer, writes about things going on in the South, in her hometown of Nashville, in in the neighborhood in which she lives. Her neighborhood is such that there are quite a few trees and enough underbrush type stuff that she gets to know what she calls nature and nature's critters. And she loves those critters. And and knows a great deal about them. But with those critters, too, there is loss. They come and they go. They live and they die. And one of her observations was this. The shadow of love is always lost. And grief always has has loss as its twin. You and I know that. God help us to live with it. So as I continue to ponder those words, dwelling in the land and safe pasture, I want us to think for a little bit in a broader sense about us as a people. And as a people known as the United Methodist. At the current time, there is great turmoil in the United Methodist Church. A number of our churches are pulling out of the connection. In May uh, 2022, it's a year ago, 
an a breakaway organization called Global Methodist was formed. And plans are currently underway for a split in the church at the upcoming General Conference spring of, 19, of 2024 to be held in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, we've known a lot, not a, a lot about splitting, and I want us to think about that for a little bit, how it has been a part of us for a long time as the people called Methodist. I recently read uh, Winston Churchill's volume, History of English-Speaking Peoples. It's a very sad read because it's war upon war upon war. Finally, come to the 14th century, and there we meet a tyrant who also had the name of Henry VIII. Henry didn't know how to relate to women in that he murdered seven of them. But he got into a fight with the Catholic Church. Henry became an ex-Catholic and started his own church, which became the Church of England. With all of its rituals, traditions, and celebrations. And along the way in that church, there was a family whose last name was Annalsey. And the Annalseys had a birth, another child. Except this was not just another birth. This was their 25th child. If you can imagine that. <laughs> child number 25. They named her Susanna. And down the road, Susanna met a poor Methodist preacher in this Church of England connection named Samuel Wesley. And the Wesleys had 19 children. Child number 16, or number 15, they named John. Child number 16, a son, named him Charles. And Susanna tutored every one of those children, if you can imagine that. And she had a profound effect upon them, particularly in matters of the Christian faith. In 1735, John underwent a very moving religious experience. And out of it, he began to preach and teach. And the content of his sermons and his style of preaching was such that the established church didn't like it. And they told him to leave. He did. But he kept preaching and teaching. And the crowds kept gathering around him by the thousands. His influence and his numbers kept growing. Other things were going on in society. People were leaving England. Many of them were tired of King George. And in the, in the New World, colonies were being formed. And John 
Wesley finally said, we need to go there. We need to be there. So he assumed the authority to do it. He commissioned Barbara Heck and her cousin, Philip Embury, and some volunteers to go to New York. Now, just think of, try to imagine that. What a job they had. But they did it, and their numbers kept growing and growing. And finally, they began to get the feeling, we need to be a church here. So they consulted with John Wesley. He was not terribly excited about it, being an Englishman. But he gave his consent. He also provided rituals for them. And in 1784, in the little town of Abingdon, Maryland, the people called Methodists got started in this country, took the name Methodist Episcopal Church. John Wesley said Episcopal because there would be bishops. And it kept going and growing. They kept moving out. By the year 1809, they had gotten down into the Ohio River country, when a territory that would become Indiana. And they went into the community of Vincennes. In their group by this time was, was a fire-eating preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. He had a good way with words, but he was also very much of a man, so if need be, he could use his fist. He even got involved in politics, ran against Abraham Lincoln for Congress, and got beat. Well, out of their gathering in Vincennes came First, what is now First United Methodist Church. And I might say as an aside, at the present time, First United Methodist Church in Vincennes is struggling, struggling big time not to take its last gasp of breath. Well, they kept going, and but things were stirring the issue that was causing so much turmoil was slavery. And they had a hard time resolving it. Finally came to a head. And there was a bishop in the state of Georgia in whose family there were slaves. He did not own them, but he would not foresee the issue of getting rid of them. So the church split a royal split. Methodist Episcopal Church South, Methodist Episcopal Church, and there had been a split in 1828 over the issue of leadership in the church, and that resulted in the Methodist Protestant Church, which had a rather strong presence in my home state of Mississippi, including a college in Brookhaven, south of Jackson. So for 95 years... The people called Methodists existed as three churches that somehow managed to, to keep going and keep the name alive. And finally, as we came to the turn of the century, it's amazing. Things had settled down. There were, there were some tough issues, 
But things were relatively quiet. People began to say, you know, we're getting better and better every way, every day. But then came Century 20. And before we knew it, we were in a world war designed to end all wars. didn't happen. In 1918, a flu pandemic which killed millions of people, including my dad's mother, Mary Ophelia. My dad was 16 when his mother died. And you know, I do not, I don't know why, I can't say why, but five of us, six of us kids, we never talked about that issue. Never sat around the dinner table and had conversation about the fact that my dad lost his mother when he was 16 years old. Then came 1920, uh, prohibition. One of the biggest mistakes ever made in the country. Prohibition meant that my home county in Mississippi was run by the bootleggers. They made the decisions. They were the wealthy ones in the county. Back of where we lived was a lot of government land trees, and you could see smoke above the trees, which meant the bootleggers were running their stills, making moonshine and homebrew. That continued until, until helicopters arrived on the scene. <laughs> so, 1920, then 1933, Prohibition finally ended. In 1939, the people called Methodists got together. The three branches came and formed the Methodist Church. New rituals, and those rituals certainly reflected the strong presence of of uh, prohibition for those years. I came along in those days. In, 19, uh, <clears throat> in 1952, I, I received what was called a license to preach. I was a junior in high school. And I met with the committee, and they asked me these questions. Paul? Will you refrain from smoking tobacco? Paul, will you refrain from drinking alcoholic beverages? In 1958, I became what was called an own trial member of the conference. I answered those same questions again. In 1960, I became a full member of the annual conference. I answered those same questions again. Then came the 1960s. We thought it would be quiet. Do you remember one night in 1962, some of you will, the Ed Sullivan Show, a Sunday night, four 
English boys appear on that show. They were singers. They called themselves the Beatles. That night, the world changed. I want to tell you, it literally changed that night. Long hair began to appear on boys, and there were so many families where it could not be tolerated. Families, some of them were literally destroyed by that kind of presence. While we lived in Vincennes, the publisher of the Vincennes newspaper, which was owned by the Indianapolis Star, called me and said, Paul, could you come to our house tonight? We've got a problem. The problem was they had two boys who had begun to grow long hair. Mom and dad could not handle it. Dad finally looked at me and he said, Paul, we have said to our boys, it's our way or the highway. I just about fell out of my chair. I made two decisions that night. One I did not follow through on, as I should have. In a room in First United Methodist Church, and, and those pictures are still there, there's a picture of every pastor going back to the beginning in 1809. You stand there and you look at them and you see long flowing hair. <laughs> you see the old wire rim glasses. I should have at least invited that mom and dad. Meet me there. Let's take a look at how things do change. The other decision I made was, as at the time, John was in elementary school, and I said, I know that growing up, he and I are not going to agree on everything, but I can tell you that the length of his hair will never be an issue. So, conflict, conflict. Finally, 1968. The people called Methodist merged with the Evangelical United Brethren and the rituals of the church were changed. The new name became the United Methodist Church, which we currently have. And the ritual for the ordination of, of uh, people as clergy was changed, or was changed to, will you be loyal to the highest standards of the Christian faith? Now, the general conference that made that decision met in Dallas, Texas. And next morning, the headline of the Dallas newspaper, the big headline on the front read, Methodist preachers now free to drink. <laughs> I asked Mary, am I free to drink? She didn't think I was. So, you see, we've dwelt in a land for 239 years 
but it's not been safe pasture all the way. In 1985, Bishop Hodap said to me, Paul, I'd like for you and Mary to move to Noblesville first. I had to smile and say, Bishop, that's a very ironic request. You see, I grew up in Mississippi in a time when there were no Republicans. Not (laughs) one. Not one. For me as a kid, Republican was a disease. But I said, Bishop, you're asking me to move to the most Republican county in the whole United States. <laughs> well, we came. <laughs> the pastor here was Dick Christopher, his wife, Phyllis. In June 1982, Phyllis was diagnosed with ALS. And it was a downhill go. This church was wonderful in its support of them. Dick took care of her at home. um, And Phyllis died June 1985. And at that time, when when, uh, Dick saw the pastor, he said, Bishop, I'm exhausted. I need to be someplace else. That's why we came. But at that time, there was another issue. It was raising its head in society and in the church. The issues of gay people. We came here, and after the first service, I met Merrill Musselman. He'd been organist for 25 years, and it was rather well known in the community that Merrill had an alternate lifestyle. He never pushed it. He never flaunted it. Never tried to get anybody else to walk in his steps. A good example of how many others ought to to live in communities. He had, a, he had a studio on the courthouse square where he taught piano. Our granddaughter, Sandy, um, uh, Elsa, uh, daughter-in-law, Sandy, was one of his students. So we, uh, we he t- in meeting him, he said he usually took some time off after Christmas, so we made arrangements to get together for lunch. We met at Pickett's Cafeteria in the then little village of Westfield. I wish, I wish that that restaurant or cafeteria was still there. Merrill had an alternate place to to live in Indianapolis, and in just a matter of a very few days after we met, Merrill was murdered. And that situation, to my, as far as I know, was never resolved. But the issue of gays in the community and in the church 
kept raising its head. We had a custodian here who loved to come to my office and vent his hatred of gays. But one morning he came to the door, opened it, came in, and he was crying. Tears were flowing down his face. I said, what is going on? He said, Paul, last night our son told us he's gay. And there were other situations in the church and community, wonderful families, where that situation became such that those kids, as soon as they graduated from high school, got out of here. So it's a tough issue to deal with. It is. And it's going to be with us. And I, I, I want to I see us deal with it in the spirit of the church. I want us to deal with it in the way that Jesus responded to people. The respect that he brought to every person. That needs to be a part of us. It's a tough issue, but I want us to deal with it through the church. And it breaks my heart to see us begin to break away, break up as it appears we're going to do. I like the ritual for, for children being, becoming members of the church that I used for a long time. I think it states so well what the church wants us to do and to be. It says, the church is of God and will be preserved to the end of time for the conduct of worship and the due administration of his word and sacraments, for the maintenance of Christian fellowship and discipline, for the growth of believers and the conversion of the world. All of every age and station stand in need of the means of grace, which it alone provides. And as I've continued this journey of thinking when I get into bed, I've often used a devotional book by, by William Barclay, uh, a Scottish preacher who has written so wrote so much across the years. He had a prayer that I love to repeat. That prayer says, "We know our need. Life has taught us that we cannot walk alone." So be with us to help, to guide, to bless, to strengthen. That in all the changes and the chances of life, whatever light may shine or shadow fall, we may meet life with steady eyes 
and walk in wisdom and in strength, in courage and in joy in the way everlasting until we reach our journey's end. May God so bless and help us to do that as we confront not only the issues of society and church around us, but ourselves. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.